This is the Bethany Podcast Network, which is part of the ministry at Bethany Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, today's message. You can be seated. All right, so we are going to jump right into it today because we have a lot to cover, a little bit of time to cover it in, but we are in a series right now that's called What We Believe, What We Live. It's a series on doctrine. So basically, it's the truths that every Christian ought to know and believe and how those truths, they change us, how they shape us, how they mold us, how they impact us. And so three truths we've learned so far. Number one, we learned that the Bible is God's word and that it is trustworthy. We spent several weeks looking at all the reasons why God's word is trustworthy, right? And what makes it God's word. Number two, learning about the nature and the person of who God is. God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each of them equally God, but each one having distinct roles unto themselves, right? The third truth that we learned, we introduced last week, and it's that mankind, right, was made by God for God to reflect God in creation, right? In other words, we are image bearers. And as image bearers, God has placed us above creation, but beneath him so that we might worship God and reflect his character to the whole world. Today, we're going to move into our fourth truth. We're going to start looking at the doctrine of sin because everyone loves talking about sin, right? We're going to look at the doctrine of sin and we're going to explore the question, what does it mean to sin? The thing about sin is many people, when they look at the topic or the conversation about sin, is they tend to, to dismiss the topic as a sort of generic or an overly generic or somewhat unimportant topic. But understand the doctrine of sin is an essential and foundational doctrine for us. It changes, impacts, and affects how we see everything in our world. If you don't believe that sin is real, then you're not going to see a need for a moral standard. And anytime we talk about God's law, you're going to look at God's law as being oppressive and nothing but a bunch of rules. You'll see no need for the Bible. You'll see no need to believe in or be dependent on God if you don't believe in sin. You'll see no need to be rescued from your sin by a good God. You'll see no need for community. You'll see no need for the ministry of the church. You'll see no need for the promise of eternity, glory, or restoration. All of these things are unimportant if sin doesn't actually exist. There are a number of people who think that sin is just a man-made religious concept that's meant to hinder progress, and it's meant to limit people or make them afraid, right? At a forum several years ago, someone asked the great theologian R.C. Sproul a question, and they, they asked him, they said, you know, Mr. Sproul, my brother does not believe in sin. He doesn't believe sin is a real thing. He says there is no sin, and because there is no sin, he doesn't need a savior. How do I respond to that? R.C. Sproul, without hesitating, without missing a beat, said, steal his wallet. <laughs> when I was in seminary, a classmate of mine, several years ago, a classmate of mine asked a similar question of our professor, Dr. Ashford. He said, how do I talk to somebody who doesn't believe in sin? They don't believe sin exists. And my professor, without hesitating, told my friend, punch your friend in the nose. See, the point is this. Those that don't believe in sin 
will only stand by that belief until sin has happened to them. Okay? In both cases, the man who would have his wallet stolen or the one that would get punched in the nose would say that there's no such thing as sin. But they would also say with the same breath, it's wrong for someone to punch me in the face and it's wrong for someone to steal my wallet. So their moral standard is that people shouldn't get punched in the face and people shouldn't take things from them. And if someone does either of those things, they're wrong. You know, the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. Turns out most people do believe in sin. Okay. But when it comes to describing what sin is, the Bible has a number of different words that we see in in our Bibles as we read them and study them, right? The biggest one, the one that I've said probably at least 100 times, and we're only like 10 minutes into the sermon or five minutes into the sermon, is the word sin, right? It's the most common and foundational word, and sin just basically, like the very basic meaning of sin is to miss the mark, right? Like shooting at a target. Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it says that there were 700 fit young men who were left-handed among all these troops. All could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. What's more impressive than having 750 fit young men who are all left-handed is that all left all of these left-handed soldiers could take a rock and a sling from across a room and shoot it at a target and nick a hair. Right? When you look at this passage, it says that they would not miss. If they took this stone and they sling this stone, that they're not going to miss. That word miss in Hebrew is the word hata. It's the same word for sin, right? So you could translate the, same, the passage to say that all could take a stone, uh, they could sling a stone at a hair and not sin, right? That they would not miss. That's why sin is translated to, means to miss the mark. But what's the mark? What's the line? What's the standard? What's the target that's being shot for, right? What we see in Scripture is that God is the mark, right? God is the line. He's the perfect line. That his character is that line. And even God's law is a reflection of who he is. So for us to sin, right, it means to miss God and to miss his character. Put another way, sin is failure to conform to the character of who God is. Okay? Sin is failure to conform to the character of who God is. So when you look at God's moral law, they're not just a bunch of random rules where you're like, well, how did God come up with that one? Like, how did stealing become a sin? Right? They're not random rules, but instead they're rooted in the character of who God is. Each one of them is rooted in the character of God's in God's character, right? And so as God's image bearers, we are called to reflect. His image. If you remember last week when we were talking about people being image bearers, it's like we're a bunch of mirrors and that we're meant to reflect. And so whatever our lives are and our attention is focused at, that's what we're going to reflect into the world. Right. And so we're like mirrors. But like we talked about last week, God is a holy God. And as his image bearers, as his mirrors, we can and should also be and reflect holiness. That God is full of truth. As his image bearers, we can understand truth. But we should also reflect his truth into the world. That when people look at our lives, 
They should see truth in us. Okay? That God is rich in mercy. And what that means is, as image bearers is that we also can be merciful people. And we, when we're merciful to people, we reflect the character of God when we do that. And so if we are made in his image to reflect his image and his character, when we fail to reflect God and we fail to reflect his character, that's called sin. Okay? So if we steal, it's not a sin because it's some random rule that says don't steal. Stealing's a sin because it makes us a broken mirror. Because stealing doesn't reflect the character and the heart of God. God is a giving and a generous God. So if we steal, right, if we steal, that's the opposite of generosity and the opposite of being giving. A thief is nothing but selfish, jealous, and envious. When we, we don't lie. The reason we don't lie is because God is a God of truth. We want to reflect truth, not lies and hypocrisy. We don't commit adultery or acts of sexual immorality, which is any version of sex or sexual activity that's outside the bounds of marriage. We don't do that because God is a God of faithfulness, a God of loyalty, and a God of fidelity. We don't murder, not because it's some random rule, right? Not to say God's rules are random because they're not. They're rooted in his character. But we don't murder because God is the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life, and he's also the judge of life over life. So to do anything that violates or reflects anything other than the perfect character of God, that's sin. Because it falls short of his perfect character and it violates the very laws which he made to reflect his character. Right? Another description for sin, you might say, if it's missing the mark, it might also be falling short of a standard. It's missing a mark, but it's also to fall short of a standard. Romans 3.23, it says it like this. It says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? What's the glory of God? That's the standard of God. That's the, per the presence of God. That's the image of God, right? That's the perfection of God. And all mankind has sinned. And because of that, they all fall short of God's standard. Some other words that the Bible uses to describe sin. Trespass and transgression. Right? Those are two words that are typically used interchangeably. It's, they're not used together, trespass, transgression, but they're typically used interchangeably. In one way, the words mean to violate trust. Right, It's to violate trust or to betray a relationship or to offend a moral lawgiver. But more specifically, to trespass or to transgress, it could be to pass a boundary or to cross the line or to do something that you shouldn't do. So if sin means to fall short of the standard, or it means to miss the standard, right, to miss the line, or to fall short of the line, then to trespass or to transgress, it means to cross over the line, to step over it, right, to pass the standard. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 and 5 uses the word trespass, and here's what it says. It says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were children under wrath as others were also. But God, who's rich in mercy, and because of the great love that he has for us, he made us alive with Christ 
even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. So even though your trespass and your transgression, right, even though you crossed the line and you went way past God's standard and you decided that you were going to live however it was that you wanted to live, the penalty for that would be death. But in God's grace, he has forgiven you and you are saved by grace. One of the old adages of sin is that sin, I'm sure you've heard this before, sin will take you farther than you want to go, right? That's conveying travel, that it's going to take you farther. It's going to take you over the line. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll leave you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. But even though we've stepped over the line, what Ephesians tells us is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the fine or the penalty for our trespassing. Even in our country right now, if you trespass somewhere, it's a misdemeanor but it's actually a criminal offense. You can be charged and be given a fine for that. For us to trespass, to go beyond the boundary of God's law, there's a penalty and it's death. We're going to talk more about that in a few moments. But what Ephesians tells us is that Jesus makes it possible for us to be restored back to the line, back to the standard, and to make it possible for us to reflect the image of God again. One more word for sin is iniquity. It's deliberately which means deliberately ignoring God's law or his plan, right? To do something perverse or crooked or to do something that's outside the scope of God's moral order, right? So back to our image again on the screen. If sin means to miss the mark, right, to miss the line, or it means to fall short of the line, then to trespass or transgress, it means to cross the line. Iniquity then would be to ignore the line or to ignore the standard or to pretend like it doesn't exist, like there is no standard, or if there is one, I just don't care about it, right? So the bottom line that whenever we see iniquity used, it typically communicates that sin isn't just an oops. Sin isn't just a bad idea. But what iniquity communicates is that when we sin, we willingly reject God and his law. We, re we willingly reject God and his standard. And what we say is, I'd rather make my own standard. I should be able to do this, and I should be able to do this, and I should be able to do this. So to, when we commit iniquity, that type of sin, what we're saying is God's standard is unimportant, but here's the new one, for me at least, and it's mine. It's whatever I say is good. right? So those are some of the words to help us understand what sin is. Uh, the Bible actually has a bunch more. Sin is a reproach. Uh, it's a roaring beast or a raging beast, it's leprosy, uh, it's a sickness that's in need of healing, right? There's a lot of other words and metaphors that the Bible uses to describe sin. But the thing we need to know about what sin is, is that it actually carries some very heavy spiritual and relational consequences. That sin carries some pretty heavy spiritual and relational consequences. And you're going to see these, by the way, again, in a few minutes. But according to the Bible, all of our sin, our sin marks us for spiritual death because our sin separates us from God. We see this at numerous places in Scripture. Our sin, it leaves us condemned and guilty. Our sin puts us under God's wrath. It puts us under God's punishment. Our sin marks us for death physically, right? An actual physical death. From a personal and relational standpoint, our sin also 
enslaves us. For those that are taking notes and you're like, I didn't get all of those. It's okay. You're going to see them again in a little bit. Uh, Our sin enslaves us. Our sin also leaves us feeling broken and craving more broken things. Our sin turns us against people, makes us selfish, and makes us envious. And our sin hurts us and those that we love. Right? So let me show you how we see these consequences in Scripture. We're going to read the book of Joshua. If you have a Bible with you in person, you can turn there. Uh, Joshua 7, if you have a Bible in the app, you can turn there. If you don't have either, it's all right. We'll have the words on the screen here in just a moment. As you're turning there, let me give you some backstories to what we're about to read in Joshua chapter 7. At this point in Scripture, in the book of Joshua, Moses has passed away. The leadership baton has been passed to Joshua. Joshua is going to now lead them into the promised land. And in the promised land are different nations and people that are living in this land. And God uses Israel to conquer each of these nations and each of these people and each of these cities as a form of judgment against them and as a form of judgment against their sin and rebellion. Understand, when they moved in, one of the misnomers that said a lot in our culture is that God just just carelessly killed nation after nation after nation after nation. And that's not what was happening. What was happening is that God as a holy God was passing judgment and holding accountable nation after nation after nation that was given the opportunity to repent and to return to him. Okay, And so they're now moving through this through the promised land. They're moving into the promised land. God promised Israel that he would be with them every step of the way, every battle along the way, and he would, that he would be with them and he would protect them and that he would ensure victory because it wasn't going to be Israel fighting. It was going to be God fighting their battles for them as long as, okay, as long as when they were taking certain items because Israel was allowed to take certain items, like plunder, right? They were allowed to take certain items along the way, but there were certain things that God had set apart that they were not allowed to take. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron, which is what Joshua says in Joshua 6, 18 and 19. We're not going to read that passage, but that's there. Okay, so God said, don't do those things, and he mentions it again in the first part of Joshua 7. The reason is, it's because God calls these things the set-apart things. Say, set-apart things. Okay, they're the set-apart things. Israel cannot take any of the set-apart things for themselves in any of their conquests or battles. Now, they're about to to carry on with their battle. They've already had one battle, the Battle of Jericho, right? Huge battle, victorious battle. Jericho's this mighty, crazy, awesome city, military fort, crazy military walls, and they beat them with a marching band, right? Right? That they were able to march around the city, a couple trumpets blow, the people scream, and the walls came tumbling down. My favorite telling of this story was the VeggieTales story with Josh and the big wall. Okay? So they have this mighty victory. Little Israel conquers the mighty Jericho. Next up, they're moving toward a city called Ai. Not Ai. Ai. Right? Or technically it's Hai. A little guttural at the beginning. But it's Ai. Okay, and it's so small the Israel scouts see it and they go, "Hey, Joshua, we're not going to need the whole army. Only send about two or three thousand troops. That'll take care of it." 
So the two or 3,000 troops go to Ai, they attack, and they get crushed. They lose 36 soldiers in battle. The rest of the troops run for their lives back to camp. Israel is crushed because they can't understand how they lost. If God is fighting their battles and God promised to always be with them, how is loss even a possibility? Joshua is so torn up and his leaders are so torn up that they rip their, their gowns, right? They rip their, their shirts. They grieve. They fall into the, into the dirt. They weep and they start praying. And in his prayers, God reveals to Joshua the reason they lost was because somebody had taken the set-apart things. Somebody thought they were above God's standard and that they could take those hidden things or those sacred things for themselves. And so what God told Joshua to do is to take all the people of Israel, tribe by tribe, then clan by clan, and then go family by family until you go man by man. And God said, I'm going to walk you to the person who took the set-apart things. Could you, be, could you imagine being Israel and he's like, line up? And they start singling out tribes and like, all right, everybody but tribe of Judah, you can sit down. And Judah's like, oh boy, right? And then they get to your family. All right, they go to your clan and then they get to your family and it's just you and your crew standing there. And then, you know, they're walking the line. Joshua's walking the line and they get to you, right? All of Israel, the entire nation of Israel is standing there watching this. And God reveals who took the hidden things. It was a man by the name of Achan who was part of the tribe of Judah. Let's read what happens. Joshua 7, we're going to look at verses 19 through 26. And it says, so Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. So Joshua's confronting Achan. He said, make confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you've done and don't hide anything from me. So Achan replied to Joshua, it's true. I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing about a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and I took them. You can see for yourself, they're, they're concealed in the ground inside my tent, right? They're buried in my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent and there was the cloak concealed in his tent under, with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out in the Lord's presence. And then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today, the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that still remains today. And the Lord turned then from his burning anger. And therefore, that place is called the Valley of Accor still today. Accor meaning trouble. It's still called the Valley of Trouble even today. You see, the story of Achan is a tragic story, but it's a relatable one in ways that I don't think we want it to be relatable. Because I think a lot of us, all of us, are a lot more like Achan than we want to admit. We're a lot more like Achan than we even want to believe. You see, so often when it comes to sin, we tend to minimize how dangerous, how costly, and how vile 
sin actually is. Because for us to sin, it means we have to understand that we're sinning against a holy God who can have no part of treachery or sin. We are sinning against the holy God. And that's why Achan, when he said, when he was caught, he said, it's, it's true, Joshua, you're right. I have sinned. But he didn't say, I sinned against you and I sinned against you. And I, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. See, sin, when we talk about sin, it sounds a lot better when we talk about sin. Because when we talk about sin, it typically with a phrase like, ah, well, no one's perfect. Right? And so when we talk about sin, sin sounds not quite so dangerous and not quite so costly. Because you know what? No one's perfect. Everybody sins. We're all going to do it. So we're all going to be okay. But like we said earlier in that list of items, sin has dire consequences for our lives. And those same consequences that we were reading through before, we're going to look at now. We're going to see the exact same ones, but we're going to see them from the perspective of Achan. And how the consequences that Achan faced are the exact same consequences that face our lives, right? When Achan stole from God, right, when he sinned, it brought carnage to his spiritual life and to his personal and relational life. Spiritually, his sin marked him for death, right? A spiritual death. In other words, his sin separated him from God. Achan no longer wanted to live for God. He was in the Lord's army, but he was like, nah, I can do my own army, right? He no longer wanted to live for God or walk with God. He wanted to look out for himself. God had promised to be with Achan. Imagine that for a moment. And the things that they had already seen with their own eyes, they crossed the Jordan. They got to see, and you're like, well, man, if I got to see the Red Sea split, I would believe. They got to see the Jordan do the same thing. And then they beat Jericho with a marching band, right? They played trumpets and screamed at a wall, and it fell. God promised to be with them, and Achan was like, nah, I'm good. I can do this myself. I can provide for myself. But the way he was going to provide for himself, ironically, was by taking from God. The things that God was going to give and bless them with. When our sin gets found out, like Achan, and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, our sin doesn't send us running to God. Our guilt and our shame sends us running from him to cover ourselves because we're embarrassed, we're afraid. We're ashamed of what's about to happen. The thing about sin you have to understand is sin kills us spiritually because we never draw closer to God through our sin. Instead, we run from him. Because when we sin, what we're doing is we're declaring open war against God, and we're declaring war against God's kingdom. We're declaring war against God's provision, and we're going, hey, God, I know you give, but I can give myself better. I know you take care of me, but I can take care of myself better, right? Achan's sin also left him condemned and guilty. Condemned and guilty. Achan's sin wasn't viewed by God as an oops. It wasn't viewed by God as a simple mistake. When God looked at his sin, and by the way, when he looks at our sin, no matter how small or how big, when God looks at our sin, understand something, he doesn't see an oops or a tiny mistake. He sees cosmic treason. 
that we commit treason against a holy king and a holy kingdom. Achan had rebelled against a holy God. And as a result, his sin put him under God's wrath and God's punishment. Not only that, but it marked him for death physically. That not only would he, is he, has he died spiritually, that he's separated from God, but now he's going to die physically. Verse, 16, uh, verse 18 and 19, chapter 6, it told us, right, God had told Israel that they could take anything they wanted, everything except the set-apart things. Otherwise, all of Israel would be marked for destruction, right? It only took one person to taint the camp because God is a holy God. Holy means completely set apart, completely different. We talked a lot about that in, our, in, in the first truth, when, the second truth, when we were packing about who God is, right? God is a holy God, which means even one sin completely changes the atmosphere, one is all it takes to make something perfect imperfect. So God's perfect presence can't have one sin. And so as a result, to have one sin in the camp, right, that took the set-apart things, it was going to taint the whole camp. So God said all of Israel would be subject to destruction. Because what it looks like is Israel welcomes sin into their camp. For Israel not to confront or hold accountable the sin that's in their camp, it makes it look like they're good with it. Let me give you a modern example. When sin happens in churches and it ends up on the news, right? When sin is in the church, people don't care about it. They do, but they really care when it makes the news. And people on the outside start looking inside and they go, how did you let that slide? Why didn't you do something about it? And they go, oh, well, they knew about this for five years or 10 years. Because when something happens with one person within a body, it affects the whole body. And it changes the perspective. Not only that, but it also changes not only our reputation, but the reputation of Christ. Because they go, I thought you were Christ followers, but Christ followers should have a higher standard of sin and what you do about it. Instead of, wel like, we welcome people in not to stay in sin, but to find Jesus and to find freedom and to find new life and to find a new beginning. Not to come in here and get comfortable in our sin and stay that way and then to keep sinning and then to grow in sin. That's not what we're supposed to be doing here. Each one of us are here, not because we're perfect, but because we're pursuing a perfect God. But in chasing a perfect God, we're trying to mold and look a little bit more like him each week and each day. For Israel to have sin welcomed into their camp and they go, ooh, Achan got him some gold. I ain't saying nothing. I'm not a snitch. What does that say about them? It means they're good with sin, but they're not as good with God. And as a result of his sin, God had Achan, and not just Achan, but also his children, put to death. And I know you're going, well, man, why would he have his children put to death? Because what, it's, what it leads us to believe in this text is that his, his children had something to do with hiding their father's sin. That instead of going, hey, my dad took the set-apart things, they helped him bury it. And so what Romans 6.23 tells us, it tells us that the wages of sin... The price for our sin, there's a, there's a consequence, there's a penalty for sin. 
and it's death. Something we have to understand and something we don't talk enough about. When we go, ah, no one's perfect. Something we don't understand and we don't, we don't talk enough about is this. God takes sin seriously. Period. God takes sin seriously. You want to know why? Because sin broke his creation. Sin separated his very special people from him. Sin declared war on his holy kingdom. Sin cost the life of his son. Sin destroys marriages, which, by the way, are God's institution for people. And sin wrecks them. Sin breaks families. Sin hurts people. And because of that, now, instead of questioning if sin is bad, people now question if God is even good. Sin destroys everything beautiful. God takes sin seriously. And sin has consequences. Achan's sin wasn't just costly spiritually. It also cost him personally and relationally. There were personal and relational consequences. Right? The thing you have to understand is that people got hurt. The people that Achan loved dearly got hurt. When his sin was discovered, it hurt his family name, and it also hurt his family. When his sin was discovered, it hurt his tribe. When his sin was discovered, it cost his family their lives. Let me make that a little bit more clear. When his sin was discovered, it meant that his family branch, his family tree branch was going to end with him. His sin cost the lives of 36 troops. His sin led Israel as a nation to question the faithfulness of God. His sin led Joshua and the leaders to question God's integrity, to wonder what had even happened. The thing you have to understand about sin is there is no such thing as a private sin. There's not. Our sin, no matter how small nor how big, doesn't just hurt you. The consequences for our decision are like a ripple in a pond. A rock hits a pond and it starts to ripple. You can't control the ripple. And you go, oh man, I had no idea. If I would have known that the ripple would have hit this and this and this and this and this, I would have never thrown it. Our point of worship is until we let go of the rock. The opportunity we have to choose Jesus is until we throw the rock. But the consequences are what happens once the rock touches the pond. And the ripple, we can't stop. I don't know about you. Have you ever made a decision or done something that just didn't stop rippling? It's the scariest place I've ever been in my life. I had no idea how far decisions could ripple. I had people get hurt that I didn't even know knew my name. There is no such thing as a private sin. Our decisions don't just affect us. Aiken's sin had spiritual and relational consequences. Number one, it turned him against people that he loved and made him envious and selfish, right? 
Sin makes us selfish people. And in confessing his sin, Achan makes a pretty powerful declaration. He says, it's true. I have sinned against God, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver, and I saw a bar of gold, I coveted and I took them. Achan saw the forbidden items. He craved or coveted the forbidden items, right? In other words, he thought about it. Once he saw it, he was like, oh my goodness, that cloak would look good on grandma, right? He saw that cloak and he was like, this is Christmas right here, right? He saw the cloak, he saw the gold, he saw the silver, and then he can't stop thinking about it. He's sitting there in his mind, he's going to sleep. He's like, man, I could do a lot with some gold and some silver. And this goes from thinking about it to lusting about it to craving it, to taking it. By the way, just something that's fascinating. There's a lot of, there's a lot of symmetry between Genesis chapter 3 and Joshua 7. A lot of symmetry. Here's one of the big ones. The same language that's used in Joshua 7 is the exact same way. It's the exact same language that's in Genesis 3. It's the exact same way that Adam and Eve fell. Because it says that Adam and Eve fell. The way that it happened is Eve saw the fruit. She wanted it, right? She started thinking about it. She started coveting it. And then she did what? She took it. She saw, she wanted, she took. Achan, he saw, he wanted, he took. Achan gave no regard for his family. He gave no regard for his marriage. He gave no regard for his kids. He just took. As a result, his sin, his cravings, they enslaved him, right? He was trying to find freedom, but he didn't find freedom. He lost it. His sin didn't make him more free. In other words, he became a man on the run. So he had to bury his sin underneath, and he had to cover his iniquity, right? He had to cover his transgressions. He had to cover his sin so that he wouldn't be found out. That's not freedom. That's prison. And he built it himself, and then he locked the door and threw away the key. His sin didn't find him freedom. It cost him his freedom. His sin also left him feeling broken and craving broken things. And it caused him to hurt others that he loved dearly. James 1, it tells us that sin and sin cravings, they don't just go away. They grow. They're never satisfied. We're never satisfied with enough. Because how much is enough? Enough is never enough. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says that, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but you have evil desire in you. I do too. Each person is lured away, drawn away, enticed by his own evil desire. And then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death, right? So in other words, what this pastor says is that sin gives birth to sin, which gives birth to sin, which gives birth to sin until it eventually produces death, right? Sin gives birth to sin, gives birth to sin until it eventually produces death. Do you think that if Achan wasn't caught, he would have stopped stealing? 
Do you think he would have been like, all right, I got enough gold. Like, I totally got away with it. Nobody knows. This is enough. No. He then starts to think he's probably the mastermind of the universe. He's like, I can do this twice. The thing with sin, Aiken's sin, it started with a glimpse. And then it became a glance. Then it became a thought. Then it became a craving. And then it became his. And it cost him far more than he was willing to pay. Sin grows. It breaks us. And then it leaves us trying to fix ourselves with maybe more broken things. Maybe if I get just a little bit more of this, maybe if I just get this, or maybe if I just get that, maybe if I just start to do this, maybe if I just don't tell these people or this person. And so in their guilt and shame, people turn to a lot of things to start masking and covering their hurt, their shame, their guilt. They turn to more broken things. They start turning perhaps to alcohol or substances because they just want to numb the pain. They turn to broken relationships and one broken relationship after another. Turn to sexual immorality. Lying. And then on top of it, you have to lie about your lies. Covering sin with good things. And by the way, we can do that. Instead of dealing with our guilt, our shame, instead of coming before a holy God, we try to hide under, under him. Right? The best place to hide in our sin is in plain sight. The best place to hide sometimes is in a church pew. It's going to church. It's teaching. It's doing good things. One of the best places to hide is in plain sight where we don't have to deal with it, but we at least have the appearance of looking like we're dealing with it. But notice what Achan did. Achan didn't take his plunder. He didn't take the set apart things. He didn't have the audacity to go out into the wilderness and bury it in the desert and put an X on it so the X could mark the spot and go back and find it. That dude took the set apart things and had the audacity to walk them into camp and bury them right in the center of camp. In plain sight. If he can do that, how easy is it for us to sit in a pew, to sing songs, and to hide our sin instead of confess our sin or repent of it? Understand this about sin. Sin is not your friend. Sin is not good for you. Sin is not helping you. Sin is not going to free you. And sin is not going to save you. Period. No matter what you're running from, no matter what you think you're running toward, if it's not God, we're pursuing after sin. And those sinful things are killing us slowly. But I want you to know this. In Jesus, there is a new beginning. In Jesus, there's a new beginning. I already read, read Romans 6.23, right? Where it says the wages of sin are death. But you know there's a second part to that verse. It says that the wages of sin are death. But the gift of Christ is eternal life. Our sin does not have to have the final say over our lives. It just doesn't. Because in Jesus, we have forgiveness for our sins. We have new life. 
new beginnings, new life habits, all of those things are possible. But it starts with the confession and being honest about our sin and taking ownership, not blame shifting, not making excuses about our sin, not lying and saying that it isn't sin because the only one we're fooling is ourselves. It's ownership. First John chapter one, verse eight and 10, it says it like this. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But again, if we say that we haven't sinned, man, this is, this is, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. That when there is sin in our lives, we're doing one of two things. We're owning the fact that we're lying or we're looking at God and saying he's lying. From our confession comes repentance. It's turning from sinful things and trusting God with our whole lives, that he's a better provider for us than we'll ever be. He's a better Lord over our lives than we'll ever be, no matter how much control we think we have, that he is a better God, he's a better uh, guide, he's a better everything in our lives. I want to close with this. And by the way, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ and you've been walking in the reality of sin and you're just like, man, I just feel like there's no digging out of this, and I feel like there's no hope. Let me tell you something. There is hope. Sin is a very tough message to preach on because there's just no way. You can't sugarcoat it. You can't be like, let me put a pillow under this to make this a little easier because that's what got us here to begin with. You have to just call it like it is. But here's the thing I want you to understand. Sin might be, bl- it might be black, dark, nasty, putrid, vile, ugly, horrendous. But you want to know how good grace is? Look at the beauty of God's love for you in comparison with the vileness of sin and the darkness of sin. That when Jesus says he's light, that light, it pierces darkness. And in the the black of darkness, when light shines through, let me tell you something. There is nothing more beautiful or radiant than light in the midst of darkness. No matter how dark your life is right now, understand that Jesus wants to give you a new beginning. That he wants to give you new life. And if you want to put your faith and trust in him, I would love to talk with you more. If you've never done that, I would love to have that conversation with you. But I want to close with a couple of reflection questions for you to take home and ponder this week and to really pray about. A couple of reflection questions. Number one, what sinful thoughts, lusts, attitudes, or behaviors have I become comfortable with in my life that should mortify me? What sinful thoughts have I become comfortable with that should mortify me? Number two, what sin is buried in my life and habits that if it was discovered, it would devastate me and those that I love? Number three, if my life is meant to be a reflection of God, how are the sinful things in my life breaking that image? How am I reflecting something other than a good God and his holy character with my life. It's a lot for us to dwell on and think about this week, and to pray through this week. If you'd like to talk with somebody or pray, someone to pray with you, I would love to do that. I'm going to be right over here during this song of invitation. But let's pray. God, I just thank you so much 
for who you are. I thank you for loving us the way that you do. I thank you for the beauty of grace that shines against the backdrop of sin and darkness. Lord, that grace is so much more beautiful because of the darkness of sin in our lives, because it's there. And when we start to see it for what it really is, we realize just what a desperate state we're in and how desperately we need something new, that we need hope, and that you're the giver of hope, and you're the giver of life, and you're the, the, the giver of new beginnings. God, help us to trust you more than the sin in our lives. Help us to trust you more than the sin we've become comfortable with, the sin that we've welcomed in, we've made comfortable in our lives, so that we might feel like we have some air of control over our lives, but help us instead to trust you more, that you are a far better God than we'll ever be over our lives. You're a far better Lord than we'll ever be. You're a far greater provider than we'll ever be. And so, Lord, give us the courage, the audacious faith to let go of the dead things that are in our lives that are just doing nothing but dragging us down and killing us slowly, and instead cling on to you, who is the author and finisher of faith, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, that you're where hope is found, you're where grace is found, you're where life is found, you are the king of new beginnings. Help us to believe that and have enough faith to trust that and to turn to you, God. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us today. We hope today's message has been helpful, encouraging, and challenging for you. To learn more about having a relationship with Jesus or to learn more about our church, go to wearebethany.com.